Exodus 21, beginning at verse 1. Again, dear friends, this is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased, as always, to write its eternal truth on each one of our hearts. Let's pray. O Lord, this is your word, and we need it. Like meat and drink, yea, even more so. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Grant us the help and the ministry of your Holy Spirit this night as we study this, your most holy word. Amen. As we said a few Lord's Days ago, as our schedules were adjusted due to the inclement weather last week, As we said a few Lord's Day evenings ago, the first half of Exodus is likely the part of the book with which Christians are most familiar. You think of Moses' early life, the burning bush, Israel's deliverance from Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, coming to Sinai, the giving of the law with fire and trumpets and thunder at Mount Sinai. And then we cross over into the second half of the book of Exodus, and this is likely the part of the book with which Christians are less familiar, dare we say even perhaps a little less enthused. Lots of rules and details, it can feel sometimes like a bit of a slog. But what I hope to help us see is that when we come to this section of the book of Exodus, a section that is later called the book of the covenant in Exodus 24 verse 7, I hope that we will see that these laws are effectively the broad principles of the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, as they're called in Hebrew, applied to a variety of specific situations and contexts. The broad principles of the Ten Commandments applied to various scenarios within Israel's national life. Now, there are some things that make this section different. This part of Exodus was not written directly by the finger of God, but rather with the pen of Moses. It's not written in stone, but on parchment. Exodus 24, verse 4, tells us that much. It gives us that insight. 
And so the regulations of the book of the covenant, this section of Exodus, do not bind with the same eternal force, perhaps the way we understand the Ten Commandments. This explains why we do not continue to keep these laws, these precepts, these statutes down to the very precise letter. While the book of the covenant contains principles, yes, that we can still apply today, its specific civil pronouncements and penalties were for the nation of Israel and thus are no longer binding in precisely the same way on the church or the state. Even in the days of Moses, the book of the covenant was never intended to address every possible, imaginable, exhaustible situation. It was more a guide to cases rather than an all-encompassing statutory code. Whereas the Ten Commandments are universal absolutes, the laws in what is called the Book of the Covenant dealt with specific situations. Various commentators will even say they were a kind of ancient Israeli case law. They provided a series of legal precedents that wise elders in Israel could use in settling disputes. But even so, there is much for us to learn here about the character of God and about our life together as God's people. All Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed, All of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This section is not any less inspired by the Holy Spirit of Almighty God than the Ten Commandments. And as one commentator pointed out, and I quite like this, he said, Regulations about livestock grazing in a field may seem mundane. However, this is where most of us live most of the time, at the level of ordinary existence. Thankfully... God is as interested in this part of our lives as he is in anything else that happens in his world. The book of the covenant is about living for God. Not just when we are standing at the foot of the mountain and gazing at his awesome glory, but when our neighbor borrows something and fails to give it back. When someone is spreading rumors about us, or when an argument turns into a fist fight. In other words, it is about real life. Close quote. God is concerned even about as much about the great and the awesome as his display of glory at Mount Sinai. He is every bit as much concerned about the mundane details of ordinary day-to-day life for his people, as this book of the covenant makes clear. So three points to guide our study tonight. The reality of sinful hearts, a God of compassion and mercy, and then a pattern of gospel liberty. We'll think along those three points this evening as we study this passage. Let's think first of all, about the reality of sinful hearts. This really is an essential place to start, of course. The Holy Scripture assumes the reality of sin, the reality of depravity, uh, of life post-Eden, a life in a fallen world, where, as I tell my children all the time, sin ruins everything. Sin ruins everything that it touches, and it touches everything. It affects everything. The presence of sin touches everything, it is pervasive, and it rots and affects everything that it touches. And many times, the scripture provides rules, guides, structures to facilitate some kind of mercy in a world where everything is in a fallen or less than ideal situation. Some kind of relief from the unmitigated effects of ruinous sin. And we might say this is a really good passage for us to study, even if it falls in the less than exciting portion of the book of Exodus. Because in tonight's passage, we're talking about slavery or servitude. And there's all kinds of assumptions and misunderstandings that follow passages like this. 
I appreciated what one pastor pointed out, that the Lord Jesus gives us a tremendously helpful hermeneutical clue, a clue for how we should interpret these matters in Matthew chapter 19. If you remember Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is being questioned about adultery, and he explains that the laws of Moses given to Israel at this point in their history, the same that we're studying, those laws about divorce and adultery, are given not because God loves divorce, no, these laws are given according to the Lord Jesus, according to Matthew 19 verse 9, because of the hardness of heart as a concession to deal with the wickedness of human society. God provided a mechanism, if you like, because he knows sinners are wickedly sinful. He knows that marriages fall apart, and he needs to regulate and constrain it so that its worst wickedness might not run rampant. And so Jesus clues us in on how we should study and interpret this passage also as he gives us that, that key or that hermeneutical clue as he does in Matthew 19. And bringing it back to our time, in our day and age, in our culture, what's one of the common charges, the, the common mockeries that we hear regarding the Bible and Christianity? So often we hear something like, why should I follow the Bible? A book that promotes sexism, misogyny, bigotry, and slavery. Why should I worship a God who facilitates things like that? Maybe you've heard a statement like that. Maybe you have friends or neighbors who've lobbed that accusation in your face. At first blush, when we read the word slavery, we might be tempted to have our mind drawn in that direction. And certainly in the American context, the word slavery conjures up all kinds of associations given our country's history. That great evil that still haunts our national conscience, the transatlantic African slave trade, what has been called America's original sin. But any fair-minded person, I think, who's willing to do the work of actually reading the scripture and studying up on the context and the background will find something rather different here on the issue of slavery than what they might have assumed or perhaps have been led to believe. We ought to remember the context in which these laws were given. Remember, the people of Israel have just days, mere weeks ago, been redeemed from the brutal life of 400 years of absolute slavery in Egypt. And as we know, there was no written code governing life in Egypt. There was no constitution in ancient Egypt. There were no case laws. There was no Bill of Rights. What was the law in Egypt? The word of Pharaoh, or perhaps even more specifically speaking, the mood of Pharaoh. You remember his arrogant defiance in the face of Moses and Aaron and ultimately God? They bring these words from the Lord to him and say, Thus saith the Lord, do such and such. And how does Pharaoh respond? Thus saith Pharaoh. You remember his arrogant defiance. It's no secret that Pharaoh and his word were capricious, changing his mind and his mood all the time, much to the misery of Israel, and frankly, to the misery of his own people at times. Unrelenting bondage for four centuries. That was slavery for Israel in Egypt. And even in those cultures that did have written law codes, you might have heard of, or people often think of the Code of Hammurabi in ancient Mesopotamia. But even there, quite different from the code or rules being given from God to Israel here, the Code of Hammurabi has very little emphasis on ethical living or concern for theological or spiritual things. As one scholar said, their valuation of human life was decidedly inferior 
Life was cheap. People were mere commodities. This was a brutal, difficult season and time and place in human history, close quote. So Pharaoh is a tyrannical, capricious dictator. Mesopotamia finds human life to be cheap and expendable, and into this culture and into this world and into this era of brutality comes the God of Israel. And what does he say? There shall be no absolute lifelong slavery to be found here among my people. Do you see that in verse 2? Slaves are to be freed every seven years. And look at verse 16. This is key. Verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. No man stealing. Kidnapping people and forcibly subjecting them to lifelong slavery. Death penalty for people who kidnap and enslave other humans. That's the law from the God of Israel. See, that's where translation and word choice and interpretive judgment calls, depending on one's context, become very, very crucial. Because here in America, that's what we think of when we hear the word slavery. At least that's speaking for myself. I suppose I can't read your mind, but I assume there's many of you like me. When you hear the word slavery... You think the transatlantic slave trade. You think of man-stealing, the abduction of African men and women and children forced to live as subhuman property. And soberingly and darkly, this practice is still taking place in great swaths of East Africa, in the Middle East, in parts of the Islamic world, and of course all over the world in the sickeningly depraved practice of what is euphemistically called human trafficking. Lord have mercy. And there is absolutely no justification from it in Holy Scripture. None. No, the form of slavery that we're dealing with in our Exodus passage is rather different. Different from Egyptian slavery. Different from the American or transatlantic slave trade. And so, one can make a reasonable case, I think, that given our context, we may not always wish to translate the word slave or slavery here, depending on our context and given our associations or misunderstandings. There's nothing wrong with that translation, nothing at all. Simply given the context or the associations, we may use other legitimate translations depending on how we want to help people associate or not associate the teaching of the text. We might translate it as servant or bond servant or some other suitable word. As one scholar puts it, speaking here of this passage, they were not slaves as we usually think of the term, but something more like apprentices, hired hands, or indentured laborers. They lived in their master's home, where they worked hard, yes, but in exchange for room, board, and an honest wage. Close quote. You see, what we have here in Israel, is in this passage, is voluntary servitude driven by economic predicaments. Remember, in the ancient world, there is no social security, there is no bankruptcy legal protection. There's no bank to get a loan to help you with your debts. You're in debt. You cannot pay what is owed somebody else. What do you do? This is the practice. You work for someone else for a time to pay off your debt. And in doing so, here is a system to ensure that you or your family are provided for and not thrust into homelessness, destitution, or starvation, but rather there is a mechanism of provision codified here in a situation of dire need. As one man said, in regulating this institution or program of servitude, God is actually ensuring provision and hope for debt-ridden, financially bankrupt people and... 
He is safeguarding against the potential for exploitation. God is limiting, regulating, minimizing the excess or excesses of sin. It's interesting. You know, some people will get into this passage, start reading it, start studying it, this section of Exodus, and and they think that there's just this hodgepodge, a a random mishmash of rules and regulations, and there's no particular order to anything. All right, he gave us the Ten Commandments, and then there's these rules about slavery and restitution and things like that. Okay, whatever. Well, well, no, there's actually much more logic to it than may first appear. Why these seemingly random laws about slavery? Why are they plopped in right here? Well, these laws are an extrapolation from the Ten Commandments. What's the first thing God says to his people before commandment number one? Right there in the preface of the Ten Commandments. We, we rehearse it, we hear it every first Lord's Day morning of the month when we have the Lord's Supper. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, bondage. His people know what it's like to be slaves. And surely knowing the burden and pain of all they've been through, they would never inflict similar misery on someone else. Surely never. Ah, God knows his people. He knows our sinful hearts. He knows how even despite the miseries of personal experience, he knows our own wickedness can bend toward inflicting the misery upon someone else, that same misery that we ourselves once endured. Because of sin, which ruins everything, yes, because of sin, what ought to be unthinkable far too often becomes thinkable. And then it becomes practical. And then reality Sinners are too often prone to dominate and to dehumanize one another. And so he institutes these measures, these safeguards against such a thing ever happening in the life of Israel. Like the debtor in Jesus' parable in Matthew 18, multiple commentators pointed out, it should be unthinkable that the man who was forgiven so much by the king should then turn and grab his servant by the throat and begin choking him. The man who was forgiven so much and then is owed by his servant so so comparatively little. And then, of course, when the king discovers this miserly hypocrisy, it does not end well for that servant. It should be unthinkable. You owed him so much and he forgave it all. This guy owes you so little and you want to be wicked toward him. It should be unthinkable. But God is a realist when it comes to sin. And so the worst potentials or excesses or abuses of the human heart are acknowledged and parameters are in place within the law of God in order to curtail these very tendencies in the life of his covenant people. God knows his people. He knows our hearts. He's a realist when it comes to sin. The reality of sinful hearts. That's the first thing that we see here in this passage. But then secondly, in this passage, we see the God of compassion and mercy. The God of compassion and mercy. God is realistic about sin and depravity and life in a fallen world. But even in his regulating this institution of servitude or slavery, standing behind his regulation of it, standing behind it all is his merciful character and his compassionate heart. We might think that slavery and compassion don't go together ordinarily. But let's consider again what's being instituted in this text. Remember verse 2? There's provision for freedom after six years of service. He shall go out for free, right there at the end of verse 2, for nothing. You see, no involuntary, no lifelong slavery, no absolute slavery. You work, 
off your debt in six years. Seventh year, like a, like a mini year of jubilee, a Sabbath principle, you're done. You're released. The debt is repaid, free to go. But then look at verses 3 and 4. If you enter single, you leave single. If you enter married, you leave married. But if you enter single and your master gives you a wife and she bears you children, they stay, but you, the man, the slave, are free. How's that fair? How's that compassionate? Seems misogynistic. Well, again, think of the cultural context of this time and this place in the world. And think of what drives a man to slavery or servitude in the first place. It's because he has no money. He's destitute and he's desperate and he's out of options. After working in this servant capacity for six years, he's paid off his debt, but he's probably not made much beyond that. How's he supposed to support a wife and children now? He likely can't, at least not yet. And women and children were incredibly vulnerable, as you may know, in this time, in this wider culture. To be an impoverished woman with children to care for was to be at risk to potentially be subject to absolutely wicked exploitations. So, if a man, in dire financial circumstances, that he voluntarily placed himself in slavery or servitude to pay off his debts, he's now free, but not exactly financially solvent, and he has a wife and children now, what should he do? Well, if they are left belonging to the master, he ensures that his wife or his children would be secure protected from risk and from other wicked predations. Safer by far than to, 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 for them to remain with the wealthy master. Meanwhile, the husband goes and makes a living and saves money and eventually would have sufficient funds to purchase her manumission, her release. Later on in the Bible, Leviticus 25, verses 47 and following, makes provision for exactly that. Redeeming others out of bond service. It was an effective way to make sure that the husband, though he be still basically empty-pocketed, could provide for his wife or children and care for them in his absence. If he could not afford to buy their freedom, and he didn't want to go that route, alternatively, verses 5 and 6, he could voluntarily and permanently remain in his master's service. Scholars tell us that what's described here is a reference to some form of oath taken between the servant and the master in the presence of God. So then there at the threshold, the door, the doorpost, his ear would be pierced by an awl, the small pointed tool often used for piercing leather or wood or metal, and his ear would be pierced into the wood of the doorpost. Now that imagery is fascinating. Blood from the servant's ear being driven into the wood of the door or the doorpost, driven into the very dwelling place of his master, this dwelling place in this family whom he shall serve and to whom he shall belong for the rest of his days. He will never walk out that door again a free man. But verse 5 says, out of love for his master and his family, instead he has committed himself to stay and to, brew, and to provide for them. I love what one commentator said. He says, you see what God is doing. He is placing regulations before his people Israel that would make sure that the very weakest and most marginal and the poorest had a mechanism for life. This is the compassion of God, close quote. 
And really, this is the same principle, rather, excuse me, really the same principle applies to verses 7, 9, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Some more challenging verses there, no question. But again, remember the context. A destitute family. And in those days and in those circumstances, what can a destitute father do to care for his daughter? Hope that a wealthy man would marry her and care for her. And so again, that word slavery is invoked, and it may not be the most optimal translation, because in verses 7 through 11, what seems to be in view there is a kind of arranged marriage. The daughter married to either the master himself or to his son. But note the built-in legal protections for the daughter. If for some reason, verse 8, the master was not pleased with her, and there's absolutely no reason to take that as an innuendo, but simply that the marriage wasn't working out. It wasn't working out. There's discord. Well, verse 8, she should be set free. But notice carefully, she may not be sold off to foreigners in order to make a profit from her. She is not property to be disposed of. She is to be set free. Because why? Because the man has broken faith with her. He's broken marriage contract with her. He's broken the pledge. He agreed to marry her, but now he's not pleased with the marriage. She has marital rights that have not been met. He's failed to provide and protect her as a husband. And so if the woman is purchased for the master's son, then notice, as one man said, she's not to be treated like some kind of plaything for the master, but rather with the dignity and position of the master's own daughter. Close quote. Verse 9, if other wives enter the home, remember, polygamy is the wickedness of the culture at this time, sadly prevalent, and God in his word aims to limit and constrain it, not promote it, but acknowledges the reality. And knowing the common Middle Eastern custom, he's again realistic about life in a fallen world. God ensures that the first wife is not neglected. And so she is not to be denied her rights. Verse 10, and if the master fails or the husband of this arranged marriage fails to provide for her food or clothing or marital rights, she is to be released for free. No payment of money. Now, did you notice the concern all the way through is actually for the welfare of the woman, for her rights to be secured and for her future to be provided for? I love how a different commentator put it. He said, what at first glance may seem like a brutal abuse of power a case of the callous manipulation of women who continue so often to be wickedly preyed upon in our culture and time, in the context of this time and place, is seen to be, in fact, a provision designed to honor the woman with rights that no one else and nowhere else have provided to her and to protect her from the danger she would otherwise have been exposed to if she tried to leave on her own. There's no comparable rights for women in these days Nothing like this will be found in the kingdom of Egypt. Certainly nothing like this will be found in the region of Mesopotamia. Not even a whisper. Passages like this may seem strange and obscure, but really this is a text that speaks about the compassionate care of God for the poor and the most vulnerable in Israelite society. These laws stem from a fundamental value. They assume a fundamental premise about the dignity of human life. Not to... to safeguard against the abuse of it. Here are sixth commandment principles fleshed out. Remember how we thought long about that? The principle of life, protection of life, dignity of life, the safeguarding of life, the valuing of human life. 
stewarding it well, cherishing it. These are Sixth Commandment principles being extrapolated here. Here is Psalm 94, verse 6. Evidence that God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. Here is Psalm 146, one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. And since, of course, there is nothing unchristlike in God, since Christ is the image of the invisible God, it is no wonder that the compassion of God is seen climactically in the Lord Jesus. I think of that passage that we read earlier from Mark, the woman suffering with a bleeding hemorrhage for 12 years, Mark 5:25 and following. It's interesting because a number of commentators pointed out this connection as well. Right? No one could help the woman. Mark says she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And then Jesus passes by. And what a picture it is of faith, isn't it? Of the exercise of faith, the outstretched hand taking hold of the only object which can afford the sinner any hope at all, Christ Jesus In desperation, yes, she's reaching out, but nevertheless, in feeble, weak, trusting hope, weak faith, pathetic, puny faith, yet real faith all the same. She reaches out with trembling hand, saying, if I touch even his garments, I shall be made well, she says to herself. And there's that trusting faith. And she touches Jesus' garments, and Mark says, immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her her disease, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. See, the woman takes, she she meets in the flesh he who is, she takes hold of, and she meets in the flesh he who is the compassionate heart of God incarnate. How many of us are tempted to think that God is not interested in the mundane details and the thorny problems of our lives? How many of us are tempted to think that he only cares about the people who have it all together? The people who are put together? The people who look the part? Those without diseases or marriages in trouble or those without wayward children? Or that the church ought to be only a place where where for people who've basically got all their sin nicely tidied up? As we heard earlier, thankfully God is as interested in this part of our lives as he is in anything else that happens in the world. This passage is about real life. He cares for his people in the realities of a fallen world. He is the father to the fatherless, and he cares enough even about things as mundane as daily bread. And he gave instructions to his ancient people about caring for those within their bounds, even as much as he tells the church today to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6, verse 2. Sin is real. God never condones sin. He never approves of sin. He never promotes sin, but he is realistic about the reality of it. And things rarely happen as tidily as we would prefer. And so, friend, if you are suffering, you need not suffer alone. God is realistic about sin and life in a fallen world, and because of that, he is a God of compassion and mercy. God, in his word, has instituted that you and I might find some of that compassion and mercy even here among the people of God. Mercy and compassion of God exercised 
through the ministrations of his people. Old covenant, new covenant in the church today. So that's the second thing. First, the reality of sinful hearts. Secondly, the God of compassion and mercy. And then thirdly and finally and briefly, we see here a pattern of gospel liberty. I do hope that one of the things that we've noticed is embedded within so many of God's laws, within so much of God's law, is this principle of liberty, of release, of freedom. And much of that is rooted in the Sabbath or the fourth commandment principle. And something which ultimately drives us once again to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, for example, look again at verse 2. We see there that slaves, servants, indentured servants, bond servants, are to be released every seventh year. Seven, like the Sabbath. Again, no absolute, lifelong, no involuntary slavery. And as you go on in the Old Testament, we come across further laws that reflect and draw from and amplify that Sabbath principle. We think of the various laws we read throughout the Pentateuch, the rest of the land, the forgiveness of debts, and then the Jubilee year, following the Sabbath of years, seven times seven, 49, so year 50, Jubilee, all is forgiven, debts paid off, rest, feasting, abundance, release. All these Sabbath laws and principles of release from bondage and release from debt and freedom and liberty, they're all derived from that fourth commandment idea that we thought about a number of weeks ago. You remember, under Pharaoh, you were tyrannically ruled. You never had rest under King Pharaoh. But you've been freed. And I am the Lord your God. I am your king, not Pharaoh, and I will not rule you like a tyrant. And under me, says Jehovah, you will have rest. No permanent bondage. You had that in Egypt, and you know what it's like. No more. Even the laws regulating indentured servitude here reflect that principle, a principle which ultimately drives us to the liberty of the gospel itself, release from sin and death, liberty in Christ. Romans 6, verse 18. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Or Romans 6, 22. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And slavery to God is no tyrannical, despotic rule over us. It is no chattel slavery, brothers and sisters. But it is the gladdest bounding and belonging in which a person might ever find himself. Because this bondservant, this slave to God, is summoned to a life in a master who bids, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. Something that Israel never had under Egypt something that the fallen, sin-glutted kings and rulers of society will never give their people. Slavery to me is the greatest freedom and rest you might ever find. But before we close, we should note, as many commentators do, that the language of the slave piercing his ear is a ritual in which he willingly binds himself to his master for the rest of his life. And he does so, notice, is he doing it under threat and compulsion? No, he's doing it willingly and gladly. Verse 5, I love my master, my wife, and my children. His, his servitude was not a form of tyranny, but a voluntary act of love. Fascinatingly, later on in Psalm 40, David invokes this imagery as well. 
Here's what David says in Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. David is saying, my ears you have pierced. I am your servant, O Lord. I willingly and gladly give myself over to belong to you forever in your service, in the, in the happy service of my master's household. And in Hebrews chapter 10, at verse 7, as those same words are quoted, as David is quoted in Psalm 40, we are shown in there in Hebrews 10 that those words apply ultimately, not simply, not merely to David, but to Jesus Christ himself. The glad and willing servant of God, the Savior whose obedience unto death has set us free. As many have said, this is the great drive, the great thrust of Scripture, the burden of the heart of God to point us to and bring us to Christ. Freedom. Freedom from the penalty and the power of sin. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth as we sing. It's found in Jesus Christ, friends. And even from this obscure little text tonight, this difficult to understand little text tonight, the scriptures are holding forth this principle of gospel liberty. And in it we hear the call yet again from the Savior, his great summons, come to me and I will give you rest. Praise God for his word to us tonight. Let's pray together. Lord, truly, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.